1: Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions dot org. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show and Salut Babette. This show is called Game Over or Game On. It features Paul Hawken, who talked to me down by the Yarra during the Sustainable Living Festival in 2018 about his book Drawdown. We start with his address to the festival audience where he asks them, how are you feeling? Depressed, came back the answer. He asked why so many people were disengaged or focused on local problems and he challenged the warlike metaphors of fighting climate change or going on a crusade. He said, when people are saying game over, it's really... Game on! Just as Drawdown describes the hundreds of activities in farming, manufacturing and in human development which will effectively draw down our carbon emissions, he urges us to get to work on regenerative development. There is so much to do that is meaningful work and will counter the detachment and complacency which is holding back climate action. So that's Paul Hawke in my interview and his talk, And then, months later, I recorded two talks at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. The setting was the seafarer's home on a rainy Saturday. We met in a cosy chapel with stained glass windows showing ships and the perils of the sea. The writers spoke from a wooden pulpit in the shape of a boat's prow, and they had to climb up a ladder to get to the lectern. Although the writers had been asked to give a eulogy, they were not saying game over either. Their tone was sombre and elegiac and more of the Great Barrier Reef had died and the drought had deepened and bushfires in winter are now expected and the political climate just seems to be getting worse. But our first speaker is Joelle Gurgis. She says that as a climate scientist she feels responsible for diagnosing the vital signs of the Earth's system and that things will get worse before they can get better. But the onus should not just be on scientists who the powerful refuse to honour. He called on artists, teachers, families to reimagine the future. Our tendency is to avoid the pain through distractions and complacency, but there is such a thing as being too late. Now is the time to face this together. Her book Sunburnt Country explores the history and the future of Australia's climate. David Ritter is the CEO of Greenpeace Australia and he thanked all of us who have taken climate action. His eulogy for all those plants and creatures like the great kelp forests, the corals and animals killed by decisions made by our most respected citizens. He said they had not been lost or disappeared, but killed. Those respected business leaders had been aided by politicians in Canberra who say, this is coal, don't be scared, as they fondle the substance that is one of the greatest threats to species and civilization. He said that despite the terrible losses in the name of short-term profit, he invoked his mother, who says that during the Blitz, you never doubt that you will win. David's book is called The Coal Truth, The Fight to Stop Adani, defeat the big polluters and reclaim our democracy and there is a last word from jeff cousins former head of acf the music you'll hear tonight is from kiribati they live nearly at sea level and are the most endangered by climate disruption their joyful unaccompanied song was recorded at a seminar at the edmund rice center for them it is not game over and i think we can channel some of their spirit their feet are firmly planted on the ground. Now, over to Paul Hawken at the Sustainable Living Festival 2018.
0: I want to ask you a question first. How are you feeling right now?
2: Depressed. <laughs> Very depressed.
0: I mean, worried, anxious, depressed, fearful, concerned, um, confused. I'm not saying, I'm just some of the things that may come up. And this has been the result of the climate conversation for the last 40 years. That's what's happened. And that's why 99% of the world's people are disengaged. They're totally disengaged. It may not be true in Australia, but it's true worldwide. The science, and David talked about it, the science is impeccable. There's 2.5 billion data points behind the last assessment, the fifth assessment. This extraordinary scientific achievement, but the communication of the science has been inept. It has guaranteed that we're in the situation we are today, because humanity, I was walking up Swanson Street here, and I'm looking at everybody's faces, you know, the problem isn't our capability, the fact is that people aren't interested. How do we do that? How did the greatest civilizational crisis humanity may ever face, certainly one has ever faced thus far, and 99% of the people in the world are going, whatever. It's not their fault. So, yes, there's a book back there. It's called Draw Down, the Most Comprehensive Plan Ever Proposed to Reverse Global Warming. I'll get back to that title. How did it come about? It came about for the same reason I think somebody said, are we screwed? I had the same question starting in 2001 kept asking people, so like Diogenes, can you, can we just make a list of what we can do, you know, what we are doing, and the scales, and what's going to happen, and do we know where we are? This is a third assessment in 2001. And I went to NGOs and institutions and they said, we don't know how to do that. Maybe you could do that. I said, I don't know how to do that, so I'm asking you. So finally in 2013, Bill McKibben wrote an article in Rolling Stone called Global Warming's Terrifying New Math. And boy, was that right on. It just terrified people. And what he did is he took Mark Campanelli's work at Carbon Tracker in London, who was a financial analyst, still is actually, but on now the nonprofit side, and he analyzed the balance sheets of every coal, gas, and oil company in the world and said basically this is unburnable carbon. We burn it, we're Venus. <laughs> Forget three degrees, four degrees, we're Venus. Bill McKibben and his piece burned it. <laughs> and I had people come to me, climate activists and people I've known for a long time, who had been very effective and they said, it's game over. And I, I'm gonna go to the Squamish Valley in BC and get a farm and, you know, I don't know what they were gonna do. And for me, at that point, I felt like sometimes as human beings, when we give up, when we surrender, when we think we, that's it, it's actually game on. It's that is the point in which transformation occurs as on an individual level. So I decided to do what I've been suggesting for 12 years, not myself, but with a group of people. And so I gathered a small group of people to map, measure, and model the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. And the reason I was doing it is because it's never been done. And so we're at 490 ppm, so when people talk about mitigation and stabilization reduction, I'm with Spratt. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. The only thing that makes sense when you see that is to stop and go the other direction. In other words, slow down, stabilization. There is no stability now uh, in the economic regime. There certainly isn't going to be any uh, for a lag time. So that is really why I wanted to name the goal. The goal is reversal. If we don't name it, we won't achieve it. The solutions we modeled are in place. They're scaling. We understand them. All the data on the carbon or greenhouse equivalent side is peer reviewed science. All the economic numbers come from the most respected institutions in the world IEA, World Bank, FAO, Bloomberg Energy, etc. So, what Drawdown is about basically is reflecting back to the world what we know. And we did that by getting a group of scientists from all over the world, 22 countries. Six continents, 120 advisors, 40 outside expert scientific advisors. In other words, we're a coalition. We're a collaboration. We are we. And what we reflect back in that book is what we know. And the reason it says it's the most comprehensive plan is because it's the only plan to reverse global warming. So we hope there's other plans soon. And the other reason is it's not our plan. Not at all. And the reason we got 200 people together to do it is we couldn't do it if we were a small NGO in Sausalito, California. If we did it that way, we have a much, as a much credibility as a lentil, you know, it's say, thank you for sharing, if you're from California, good going. I mean, what we wanted to do is basically bring people together so that we know what we know and what we're doing and what is possible. And so we scaled them for 30 years They're already scaling, and we scaled them in a reasonably rigorous way, and we did not achieve drawdown in 2050. (laughs) And so what you see here, I think, is three different scenarios, and you can see for the top 15 solutions... We tweak them and we achieve drawdown, which is that point in time when greenhouse gas emissions peak and go down on a year-to-year basis. That is not the beginning of the reversal of global warming. It's a big lag time. Going back to what I said at the beginning, how we're communicating, how are we communicating? We're fighting climate change. We're combating. It's a climate crusade. We're using war metaphors to deal with something that is sacred, which is the atmosphere. With a living system. We're using 2C, 2C, 1.5C. We're using 2C, and 2C is what? Science based target, right? No. It was pulled out of thin air by Richard Nordhaus at Yale and Joachim Schellenhuber in Germany. But let's say it's true. What's the problem with 2C? Is this a future existential threat? And human beings do not respond to future existential threats. Our brain doesn't work that way. Everybody who used to respond that way isn't in the gene pool. They're gone. The people who your ancestors responded to current existential threat. So unless the, 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 the movement to reverse global warming is actually addressing current human needs, it will fail. And we're the only species without full employment. Think about that only one, the other 10 million do a pretty good job of staying busy. We marginalize each other and say you have no value. And what do human beings need? Our needs are common. We need dignified, purposeful, meaningful, living wage jobs that make a difference in the world. That our children will look to us, our community will look to us and know that we're doing something that actually is meaningful and important for us and and the future. And that is the pathway, and that's called regenerative development. And what we're doing right now is degenerative development, which is we're stealing the future, selling it in the present, and congratulating ourselves on our GDP growth. And there's no reason we can't heal the future, sell it in the present, and call that economic growth. a very different type of economic growth. And reversing global warming is about coming home. Let's come home. It's our home. And this idea that somehow the climate is other, that atmosphere is other, that we can fight it, is so bizarre. I'm sorry, it's like climate, you can't fight change. You can't, change is change. The climate is supposed to change. And I want to say something controversial, which is, do you think climate change or global warming is happening to you or for you? If it's to you, you're the object, you're the victim, right? Not fair. How come that happened? I didn't do it. They did it. Whatever. But actually, any system without feedback dies. And this is feedback from a system. This is happening for us. This is a blessing, not a curse. This is the transformation of who we are, what it means to be a human being. This is an extraordinary gift to us. And we have to, once you understand it's for us, then you stop demonizing, blaming, using war or sports metaphors to actually describe what we should do, and you go to work. The science is extraordinary. Once you know the science, got it. Do you still want to just talk about how fast it's getting bad and, and worse and how it's getting worse faster, or do you just want to go to work and let's get the job done and let's solve it? I know we can do it. I want to say one more thing about that book, There is 20 coming attractions, and we model things that are in place, that are working, that are scaling, that are peer-reviewed. We know how to do those things. In our database, you'll see 20 coming attractions. We have 300 more techniques, practices, technologies that are nascent. And what we're saying is human being is brilliant. We're genius. We don't project that into the future because it's right on the horizon or just under the horizon. And what's coming is extraordinary. Thank you so much.
1: I have with me someone who's not afraid of leadership. Paul Hawken has written a book called Drawdown. He's famous in America for his um, climate work and I'll ask him a little bit more about his other work but this book Drawdown is going to change a lot of lives I'll certainly be using it as a textbook from now on because you can just look it up. Lots of people I'll interview for example kelp, you know how does kelp sequester carbon in the sea, marine um, sequestration or rotational grazing, how does that sequester carbon all of the Things that help you draw down. He's collected them and he's done a very good intellectual job for us by synthesizing it and putting it into a book that's like a recipe book. You know, here are all the, all the things that you could cook up if you chose and all sectors of society can be involved. It's not just activists um, like we often interview people blockading a coal mine or uh, striving really hard to get a wind farm in a town. It's more like every sector of society. So really welcome and thank you uh, Welcome to Australia too
0: Thank you Vivian It's, it's a joy to be here i been here many times actually oh. uh, To Australian children So oh. <laughs> At least I think they've kept their passports uh, So I love being here And even though um, It's far away It actually seems very close to us In California In terms of Values and food And weather And uh, fire We have lots of fire Where we are too <laughs> So thank you so much
1: Well, the first question is a really specific one because it was the top of your list when Paul and his huge team of people who gave a lot of their time pro bono and just work really hard to find these solutions and then put them and write them in a very accessible way like it's easy to read the essays on each topic but at the top of the list you said it was not very sexy and you were rather surprised that this was the one that turned up when you crunched the numbers was refrigeration so i want to know i've understood um you found out that refrigerants the refrigerants we use now in air conditioners and in fridges are the wrong ones and yet the refrigeration industry is going to run with it does that mean we don't have to worry about it that they'll take over
0: well the way we set about modeling the solutions is not in silos but as a system solutions interact with each other both positively and negatively so although we spent almost three years modeling the solutions we actually didn't hit the total button until two months before the book was published we had the book laid out and all the content and copy but we didn't have the exact numbers because you're never never finished with the model you always make it better and so we waited till the last minute and when we did get the ranking and refrigerant management was number one we were actually disappointed because we felt like a lot of people wouldn't relate to it you know it was yeah. like it wasn't sexy it was like way off the charts in terms of what you hear about and yet the the numbers were there what we discovered is that right after the book was published the refrigeration industry was just overjoyed that refrigerant, or refrigerants, are, were the number one solution and cause, and actually not true with the cause, because actually fossil fuel combustion is the number one cause, but I mean, a number one opportunity in terms of greenhouse gases, and that's because the refrigerants that are used today used to be CFCs and now it's ACFCs, but they are from 3 to 4 to 5 to 6 to 9,000 times more powerful in their uh, global warming potential than CO2. And they're just being emitted everywhere in the world from leakage but also dismantling of refrigeration and air conditioners and there's in countries like Australia, certainly California there's a decommissioning process where these gases are captured and then through paralysis basically made neutral but most of the world doesn't do that and so the Kogali amendment the Montreal Protocol, which was passed last year, I think in September, calls for a phase out by 2030 of all uh, refrigerants that uh, have a global warming potential. But the industry itself is already on it and in converting uh, supermarkets and creating air conditioning systems and HVAC systems so forth that use uh, ammonia propane, supercritical CO2 of all things as a refrigerant. So the industry is well on its way. To solving that problem. It's going to take about 12 years before it's fully solved, and there'll be, in a sense, legacy systems out there, you know.
1: I thought it was novel, and to me, as a person who has protested against coal and gas for a long time in Australia, because we're a major exporter, and protested like Bob Brown, both protesting against forests de- uh, logged and, and just totally destroyed, and farmland dug up for. Gas, coal seam gas I, I thought this is at least one thing we don't have to protest about that the industry will at last do the right thing and decommission it and as global warming it's so ironic global warming the answer to it for most people is turn up the air con and in Asia for example a lot of places will be unlivable if we keep going on in the way we're going so I hope they can get air conditioners that are not going to exaggerate the problem
0: well there's a whole new uh, air conditioning technology that is coming that doesn't have compressors which is nothing to compress, solid state. There's, um, and out of uh, Singapore, there's a new air conditioner that's completely based on water. Uh, and uh, you're seeing uh, other types of uh, refrigeration technologies emerging right now that move away from the carrier model, which is basically um, based on dew point and compression and expansion of gases. You know, So even if we get rid of the refrigerants, and the, the fact is in the, most of the world, the, the the tropical zones, you know, developing world, the number one use of electricity is air conditioning.
2: Beyond Zero Emissions doing fabulous um, publication work very regularly.
3: Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. Bz.e.org.au
1: we're talking to Paul Hawken here who's the editor and writer of a new book called Drawdown which is a very impressive book to for anyone who's uh, studying climate change worried about climate change thinking what can you do well here's the answer there's lots of things we can do but also I think there's a mindset change that you would like to see and in the great debate the other night we had talk about just how grave it is uh, permafrost melting for example geoengineering being a threat do you like know, who, who would have their finger on the the thermostat that sort of thing a lot of it was almost as if we're stuck to the problem like to a tar baby and you know we're we're thinking of it in terms of an emergency we know it is an emergency but when you got up to speak it was the atmosphere changed you changed the tone and I think change of tone is something that a lot of people would tune into because a lot of people I meet are just disengaged they pat me on the head for doing a bit of radio but they say oh but we're stuffed aren't we and you sort of said no it's, it's not game over it's game on
0: yeah I mean it's what you see in Australia we've seen in the United States as well and the, the, my um, point of view is that the science on climate change has been primarily about impact and then not only measuring perhaps the impact it's having now, but really to go forward and to, in a sense, approximate and predict future impact from a warming planet. The science is is quite extraordinary. What isn't extraordinary is science communication. The way it's been communicated to us, not necessarily by scientists, well, in some cases, yes, but by activists and authors and other people has been based on fight or flight, it's based on fear, it's based on threat, based on doom, it's based on the idea that, you know, um, we're in big, big trouble. And um, to me, it's just the wrong way to approach it. Once you understand the science, the science is a problem statement. It's, ex- it's quite an extraordinary problem statement, I should say. I don't think there's ever been anything close to it in, in our history in terms of you know, people coming together and then basically through science and data points Uh, Basically a measurement and extraordinary work Approximate the uh, scope and the breadth of a problem That we face now and far into the future Once you have that problem though It seems to me, given the gravity of the problem And the enormity of the problem Then it behooves us to say, got it What are we going to do? What's the solution? Rather than to keep using the problem statement over and over again as a way to communicate uh, the importance of the solutions, actually, it creates disengagement. It creates... It's just just the human... It's how the human mind works. When you keep describing something that an indi- individual feels like they can't do much about, uh, they actually feel really bad, ashamed, guilty, disempowered, but mostly they feel numb and disengaged. And 99% of the world is totally disengaged from the greatest civilizational problem we will ever face and certainly have faced up until this point, and that's due to how we communicate. The the science, what it really describes beautifully is the probability of what's going to happen in what way when and where and how much if, you, if it's like sea level rise and it's again it's an approximation there's high level low you know, medium low and of course it's about the future so it has to be approximate but the direction is very clear and to me when you What's great about a problem, and it's a vast, enormous problem, is that it points to the possibilities. It doesn't mean when you focus on the possibilities, which is what Project Radon does, that you ignore the probabilities, or that you're ignorant of them, or you're you know, Mary Poppins and Dr. Pangloss. Not at all. But you're not stuck there. You're not staying there. You're not using that as a cudgel to convince other people that their life should change or they should do something that they're not doing now. What you do is you focus on the solutions, and the solutions are extraordinary. I think that's what we discovered at Project Dreadham by mapping, measuring, and modeling the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. Uh, I think our, all of our response as a staff, as as scientists, uh, you know, there's 200 of us working on this, is like, could be summed up in two words, which is, huh, Who knew? <laughs> who knew? that this is you know refrigerant management who knew food waste who knew about plant-rich diet the importance of it I mean of course everybody knows they're important but in terms of the the impact on climate
1: and I could say uh, for the Australian audience some of the people you interviewed you could say who knew of them unless they listen to our program because we've interviewed some of those especially the farmers Colin Sice up at Gullgong oh, yeah. and quite a few of them yeah. and those when I spoke to him I said how does the word get out because he goes around all the time doing workshops on his pasture. perennial perennial, pasture, crop. yes, pasture cropping and these perennial grasses and he says oh it's sort of you know beneath the radar kind of thing and it's just people networking and I think that's the clue to the take up for your drawdown a lot of those solutions that you've identified you've put a big picture there you've explained it recently, really clearly then people start start to think I could take this to this This could happen in my country this could happen in my city or this could happen anywhere
0: you say it could happen actually the solutions we map measure and modeled are all happening all scaling all practiced all well known Mm. so we didn't in solutions that are wannabes or could bees or should bees. Actually we only put in solutions that we understand extremely well and that go back decades, in some cases two thousand years, and that are all scaling right now. So I want to make that very really clear that it's not a you know it's not a fantasy. It these these, are, these solutions are in place scaling and are affordable.
1: The land based solutions really interested me. There were a lot of things that can be done on the land and I would think done without really government interference at all. Or Government subsidy or government incentives, and and they're just practices that a lot of farmers are putting in place. And one of the ones that interested me, um, I discussed that with Bob Brown because the Greens in New Zealand are starting to say they should destock a little bit, not completely, but start. Destocking because these artificial meats and artificial milks are on the horizon, and they will compete with them, and they better position themselves to have a more diversified economy. You said that in your book that you thought that, that that was going to be one of the perhaps game changers. Can you talk a bit about diversifying things that are grown and land management? Because you really ad- advise or or see a plant based diet as one of the best solutions.
0: Well, we don't say plant-based; we say plant-rich, that's and it's a really right. different. Plant-based means yes. it's vegan, and we don't. Oh, say, no, no. And what we say is, you choose the diet you want. It can have meat and vegetarian, it can be vegan, but what you need to do is reduce the amount of protein to a healthy level about 55 grams a day for an adult and the other thing is to increase it where people don't have sufficient protein that's important but at the same time to move some of that away from uh, uh, animal proteins to plant based because the world's better you're better everybody benefits from that going back to New Zealand however like actually stocking rates is an interesting question how you stock is more important than the, the number Uh, because if you stock them in typical non-rotational pasturage, you get land degradation over time. Actually, the land declines in its fertility and carbon storage. With amp grazing, rotational grazing, there's different words for it, but basically imitating the prey-predator relationship between what you see in plains in the Serengeti and what you saw in the Buffalo Common and so forth. Animals actually herd... And Eat in one place and they move on they don 't go back and When you do that, then you can increase your stocking rates because you 're actually you 're increasing your productivity, but you 're actually increasing the productivity of the soil, water retention fertility, so you actually get a win win situation, so it really depends how they 're stocking. I think the world is going to move towards grass-fed and away from CAFOs for those who choose to eat beef I don't choose it but I really really know and well no but I mean respect the fact that you cannot have healthy land without animals you take animals off the land, the land goes south, and so we have to have respect for those people who are managing the lands, whether it's sheep or goats, or whether it's you know pasture-raised chickens, or whether it's rabbits, or whether you know, whatever. You know the fact is that the land that we occupy as human beings co-evolved with animals, and when you take the animals away, it devolves, and so we have to be uh, we have to honor that, and that's just good biology you know and if you're a vegan that's fine but doesn't mean you can in a sense decry somebody else who's farming in a a certain way Uh, you can take a high moral ground there but it doesn't do any good for the land and for the atmosphere and so we have to figure out ways to do this that are in accord with what everybody uh, hopes to be a healthy world
1: To the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Now we will hear from climate scientist Joelle Gurgis.
3: As some of you would know, losing a parent is a life altering experience. It affects you in primal ways you aren't prepared for. The loss is indescribable, yet find words we must if we are to try and come to terms with its gravity. It was a deeply confronting experience pouring over the details of his extraordinary life distilling the essence and legacy of a great man into a handful of tear-stained pages. My dad's death was a long one. He suffered a series of terrible brain hemorrhages that left him a terrifying testament to the brute force of life to hold on, no matter how horrific the consequences may be. His death took place over the final months of writing my book Sunbird Country, which, for the first time, piece together the history and future of climate change in Australia. The parallels didn't escape me. As my dad lay dying in a hospital bed, I was writing a book about the slow death of our precious planet. Some days, the grief I felt in my inner and outer worlds was almost too much to bear. On those days, all you can do is surrender and let the sorrow seep out of every pore, as it must. So, when I was approached approach to write another eulogy so soon, a part of me recoiled. It felt dangerously flippant to willingly stroll into the brutal terrain of grief. I simply didn't want to go there, as those wounds of sorrow had barely healed for me. As a climate scientist, I'm responsible for monitoring the diagnostics of the Earth's vital signs. We carefully chart changes in temperature, ice cover, and rainfall patterns, just like a doctor or nurse tends to a patient in their care. As I pieced together our, na- our national climate change story for the first time, inescapable truths barreled through me in an intense visceral way. When I realized that the Great Barrier Reef was dying and could see how sea level rise is likely to engulf our magnificent coastlines, I recalled with that intense burning feeling you get in your belly when safety falls away, the sickening freefall of knowing that everything, in the end, has its breaking point. But over time I realised that the only way forward was not taking a detour in denial, but straight through the heartland of grief. The natural world is where we go to reflect and play and connect like an animal feeding from its mother, primal, urgent and vital. When you realise that all that sustains us is at stake, it's almost too much to process. The reptilian brain wants to take flight and avoid confronting the unthinkable danger bearing down upon us. Just like a doctor diagnosing a critically ill patient, as a climate scientist, I face the terrible task of being the bearer of bad news. What I do is akin to asking each person to sit with the horror and grief of having to imagine the prospect of losing the life force that miraculously sustains us all. I have to take people by hand and gently ask their reptilian brain to not take flight. I ask them to stay with the gravity of what I have to say and what it means for the future. And just like a serious health condition, when you catch things early enough, appropriate treatment can avoid a condition progressing into a terminal situation. If you act early enough, there are things that can be done. Tumours can be removed, lifestyles can be changed, lives can be saved. While I readily admit that there are now some things that we can no longer save, I believe that all is not lost and that there are still many things worth saving. What we do now will shape future life on the planet and how much will be lost to future generations. (coughs) Putting the brakes on greenhouse gas emissions will help minimise the level of dangerous climate change that we end up experiencing. If nothing is done, the worst case scenario sees up to 50% of all life on the planet disappear by the end of the century. Sea level will inundate the world's coastal cities, unleashing a tidal wave of refugees. Our summers become a living hell, where temperatures soar past 50 degrees Celsius, making the world outside air-conditioned oases dangerous for all life if we do nothing, we commit ourselves to this new normal. But if we decide to listen to what the world scientists are telling us, the same way you would listen to a doctor advising you how to keep your mother, father, partner, child or dear friend alive, averting disaster just might be possible. If we listen with every fibre of our being, and really allow ourselves to be moved by the threats we face, we will effortlessly shift into a place of deeply humane compassion, where complacency is just not an option? Would you abandon your mother, partner or child in a hospital with a treatable medical condition, saying that it's all too futile, even when the doctors have told you that there are still options? Taking a stand for the planet is just like addressing a treatable health condition to avoid the worst possible outcome. So today I stand here as a climate scientist who live and breathes this dilemma every single day to say, now is not the time to eulogise our planet. To give up now is to give in to the toxicity and paralysis of cynicism and despair. Now is not the time to curl up in the fetal position and declare that it, all, it is at all too hard or wait for someone else to figure this out. Now... More than any point in all of human history, it is the time to redouble our efforts. I'm here to say that the apocalypse is not a done deal. It's time to realise that the onus is no longer on the scientific community to take all responsibility for caring about the fate of our planet. Today I am here to call on our artists, our musicians, poets, writers, our teachers, our families, all fellow humans, to help us collectively come to terms with what we are facing and how we can reimagine a future where beauty and heartbreak strike a tolerable balance. We need to go down fighting to feel like we did everything we could to avoid the domino effect kicking in and unleashing a cascade of irreversible change that saw us sail past the point of no return. Trust me, I'm not an idealist. I consider myself more of a pragmatic optimist. I understand the science deeply enough to realise that there are things, that things will get a lot worse before they get better. But just like a loved one with cancer that needs urgent treatment, now is not the time to turn away from our planet. We need to treat our extraordinary earth with the same care we would extend to the most precious people in our lives. So instead of letting our earth die, we must let this be the moment in human history that instead marks the death of complacency. In the past, as Australians, we could get away with living in ignorant bliss, but no longer. The reality of our warming world has well and truly arrived on the shores of the lucky country. We are now witnessing large scale ecosystem collapse with the recent deaths of 50% of the corals in the Great Barrier Reef. Our drought-stricken land is strewn with dead and dying animals suffering from ruthless heat and thirst. All the while our politicians refuse to accept the science of climate change. They refuse to honour our global responsibility to avoid planetary catastrophe. If we can't rely on our leaders to lead, we must take matters into our own hands. Now is not the time to look away thinking that what we do doesn't make a difference. Because the truth is, if 25 million Australians got behind this, we would change the entire course of our history. As we transition from the golden age of carefree abundance to the awareness that planetary destabilisation is at stake, we must ignore the hardwiring of our reptilian brain to want to run and hide. Instead, we must choose to stay and face this one together. In April 1967, one year before Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, he delivered his famous anti Vietnam War speech at Riverside Church in New York City. He spoke of the horrors of the war, saying, This madness must cease, pleading for sanity to prevail. He famously went on to say, we are faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. We may cry out desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is dead to every plea and rushes on. Over the bleached bones and jumbled residue of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words, too late. The science is crystal clear. We are already committed to dangerous levels of climate change and Australia is the most vulnerable nation in the developed world. What we do now will determine how much will be lost to future generations. Psychology tells us that blocking feelings of empathy and concern to avoid psychological pain is a common human defence mechanism designed to protect us from becoming too emotionally overwhelmed. Endlessly distracting ourselves with mundane matters is a way of psychologically distancing ourselves from feeling conflicted and distressed by the realisation that we individually and collectively have an ethical dilemma to face around caring about each other and the future of all life on Earth. The time has come to connect our head with our heart and open ourselves to the loss and opportunities we now face. This is not the time to look away and disengage, It is the time to make a choice about which side of history you're going to be on. So today, dear friends, I stand before you refusing to eulogise our miraculous blue planet. There is still far too much work to be done. But I am here to say that we are fast running out of time. History has taught us that politicians should never underestimate the power of people standing up for what they believe in. We are now at a pivotal moment in human history where everything we do does make a difference. And as we continue our fight against denial, inertia, greed and apathy, be heartened by the wiser words of anthropologist Margaret Mead, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has.
1: This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show and now we will hear from the Head of Greenpeace in Australia, David Ritter.
4: No doubt some of you here today are part of the Greenpeace crew or the broader environmental and justice movements and if so I thank you for your enthusiasm and for your commitment. Greenpeace has never accepted any money from any government or any business and never will. All we are is us, a movement of people more than a million of us in Australia and the Pacific alone, determined and united in our shared mission. We are a movement that is famous for saving things. Whales, rainforests, wildlife and ways of life. Alas though, I cannot stand before you and say that all can be saved. In big truth, we are too late for much that once was. From the fires that have lately torn at the Arctic in the north to the melting away of the kelp forests of the cold Tasmanian seas in the south once thriving species and ecosystems are disappearing, suffocated under the smothering blanket of a warming world. So too are people dying, being killed by the extreme consequences of climate damage. I use the word killed mindfully. These creatures, these communities, these people did not go quietly into the night through any natural process. They were not lost, they were killed. The forces that are wreaking havoc on our wonderful world are the consequences of deliberate decision making, often by some of the most powerful and respected members of our society. And it is impossible not to note in this context that I'm giving this eulogy under the shadow of the appointment of a new Prime Minister of Australia, an MP who wants to disgrace our National Parliament by holding aloft a black stone like an object of fetish and uttering words of almost unimaginable foolishness and duplicity. This is coal, he said. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. This same substance has been described by Professor James Hansen as the single greatest threat to civilisation and all life on our planet. For reasons of personal circumstance and coincidence, in giving this eulogy it's also hard not to think of another which I gave almost five years ago to the day to my own mother a woman by the name of Jean. If you will forgive me the personal... Born in the United Kingdom, my mother was of that generation who came to adulthood in the midst of the Second World War and lived through the worst of the bombing of England cities. Throughout her life, Jean held vivid memories of the war, including terror-filled days when friends were killed and the odds of victory against fascism seemed altogether slim. Yet my mother would always recall, with a certain steely mildness, That even in the toughest of days, the funny thing was, David, we never doubted we would win. Nations tend to remember wars through the lens of national histories as won or lost in absolute terms. But there is never any victory without loss, without suffering. People who are killed in the course of the brutal journey of war will never know the peace. Those maimed in body, mind or spirit will never feel the armistice. Similarly, in the great struggle for an earth capable of nurturing life in all its splendid diversity, there have been and will continue to be terrible losses along the way. And it is right that we mourn all that has been killed by the vested interests that have prevented action in the pursuit of short-term profit horizons or venal political advantage. And reflecting on the dead, and facing the grim predictions of our most eminent scientific minds and our finest research institutions, it would be very easy to be consumed by grief or to be rendered immobile by sheer dread. And yet we must lift our eyes Great forests still stand, fragments of reefs still glimmer, from the humblest of snails to the most gigantic of whales we are still astonished by creatures of intricacy and beauty that are beyond anything we could imagine. Now, who among us,
5: who among us could gaze around at all of this and not see still
4: the glimpses, the glimmers of paradise on earth? We cannot be in denial. Our precious earth is wounded, but she is very much alive. All across the world, life fights for life. All across the world, innumerable plants and animals seek to survive and reproduce, and we must be the allies, the stewards, the servants of that eternal imperative to renew. Given time and the right conditions, the earth will renew and life will flourish once more. The tens of thousands of whales that swim past our southern coasts every year, recovered from a remnant, are a living testament to the truth that a path ever downward to a destroyed world is not preordained so long as there is purposeful intervention by people. In this great struggle all that we have is ourselves together. This is our monumental strength this is the thing that we have known since we were children, that people working together can achieve anything. In this country, our country, we have it within our power to build a more balanced and truly prosperous Australia in which people and nature are nourished, in which politicians are freed from corporate capture and those who work for private enterprise are liberated from the amorality and chronic short-termism which characterises the current system. There are the technological and the policy solutions to the problem of global warming and indeed there is the promise of free and unlimited clean energy if there is sufficient will. It is all perfectly possible based on what we know now, and the tools and the resources that we have at our disposal. Profound historical turning points and moments of social progress require sustained commitment, but they are not predictable in their form or in their timing. Social progress is nonlinear. It's like the water of a creek that breaks its boundaries during a flood or the sudden moment when a kangaroo bounces off or a bird takes flight. We must maintain our energy, our convictions, and our resolve to succeed, never being quite sure when these instants of opportunity and victory will come, but ready to seize every one of them that arises while keeping our eyes steady on the bright horizon. So, let us honestly reflect on what has been lost, but not in muted mourning, not paralysed with grief or with shock not distracted by the confected ironies of writers' festivals, or the gilded amusements of their splintered years. Let's instead be united in a peaceful (coughs) rage for change. Let us be animated by our shared joy in all that remains on earth, by all that we love, For in these whisperings are the wellsprings of our shared power and determination. If the lives of the unnumberable dead are to have any redemptive meaning, it can only be through this that our shared power and determination are applied resolutely to the great task of defeating the big polluters, of reclaiming our democracy, of building the foundations for our future flourishing. So let us brace ourselves for this hard work, so that if indeed human civilization does last another 10,000 years or more, that our descendants will look back with love and appreciation upon a generation which called a halt to the destruction, and which held the future not as hostage, but with the same protective tenderness that you hold a baby, not in fear, but with love and purposeful hope. Thank you. My
5: is pretty grim. No, no, to
4: change. Change. Change.
5: Do you ever feel like just switching off well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide. Literally.
1: With the last word, Jeff Cousins. He's a great climate campaigner and former head of the Australian Conservation Foundation.
5: It's hopeless, man. My feeble little speech at this auspicious writers festival is just a eulogy for the death of the reef. Like hell it is. Forget the politicians. They'll never deal effectively with issues of this kind where longevity of vision and effort is required, and never have. One of the great and sustained errors of the environment movement in this country and elsewhere has been to put so much effort into political campaigns to change governments. Either the new government doesn't deliver or the next government throws out the few improvements they made. Look at the USA at the moment, or this country pretty well any time. Put your faith in the people, but most in people who lead others, people who speak powerfully, people who write with skill and passion, People who paint or draw or make sculpture that's subversive or disturbing. People who create plays or films or dance or podcasts or some form of communication not yet invented that bring home the urgency and critical nature of these issues. People who lead community groups or special interest groups and have the ability to burst out and capture a wider audience when the time requires it. And that time is now. This is what will happen on these momentous matters. The politicians will be amazed and frightened by the people's revolt, by the great wave of disgust and revulsion at their incompetence and indifference, and by the extraordinary shifting plates of civil disobedience beneath their feet. For this will become the greatest and most irresistible force for social and political change all over the world that's ever been seen, greater than the civil rights or apartheid movements, because every human being will be affected, regardless of race or religion. And those remnants of the national of the natural world that remain will, will become the temples of the new era, and will be nurtured and revered. And the great, great barrier reef ever so slowly, will revive and live. We will overcome. We shall overcome. This time, all of us together shall overcome.
1: Thank you for listening. Thanks to Paul Hawken, Joel Gurgis, David Ritter, Jeff Cousins, and the choir from Kiribati. The team tonight was Andy Britt, Roger Vyse, and my name is Vivian Langford. Tune in next week at 5 p.m. for the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show.